0: We are blessed men, our Father, because we approach you through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We are reminded that no good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. We are blessed to live in a nation where we still have freedoms. We are aware that they are being taken away, and we are concerned, but nevertheless, we would choose not to be anywhere else. We thank you for the privilege that we have to register a vote. Very few places on the face of the earth have that privilege. And we thank you that we have it. We know that every good and perfect gift comes down from you. So we want to be thankful men tonight. There are things in our lives that we would change if we could change them. We're also aware that many of these things are completely out of our control. But they're not out of your control. So the knowledge that you're in control of all things, the knowledge that you're in control of every human heart on the face of the earth, those that are for you, those that are against you, you control them all. Just the realization of that fact helps us. Just the realization of that fact encourages us. Every circumstance, every situation, every pressure, you're bigger than all of these things. We need to be mindful of these things. The psalmist said, the eye of the Lord is on those who hope for his loving kindness. And not only do we hope for it, we have seen it and we have experienced it. As we come here tonight from uh, different circumstances, from different physical places, from different places in life, we all need perspective and we all need encouragement. Supply that to us tonight. Thank you for the work you're doing in our hearts. Thank you that it's your desire to conform us into the image of Christ and that you are growing us into that image of Christ. That involves a lot of change, and it involves a lot of pain. But may we remain teachable. Help us to guard our hearts and to keep watch over our souls, for from our hearts flows the wellspring of life. So tonight we're here. We ask you, Lord, to deposit truth into our hearts that will apply immediately to where we are in life. Some of us need immediate guidance. We ask that you would give it to us. And you have promised to do that. Some of us need great wisdom. Some of us need patience. Some of us need discernment. But you, of course, know all of these things in advance. But we express our need to you. Thank you that we can trust you with our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) So once again, turn with me to the book that doesn't exist. The Book of Boaz, which is the Book of Ruth. I was talking to uh, Bob before he got up to play the piano. He said, I saw you in your truck preparing for tonight. And I said, well, actually, I was changing up my intro because if you've ever taught or done some speaking, sometimes uh, you're on your way to actually speak and something will just hit you like a... I remember one time I was speaking for Chuck in the old building and they, it was the second service, so I knew what was coming, and someone was doing a solo, and in the middle of that solo, I got an idea and changed my whole introduction. But well, I didn't have time to write it down, I just went up and went with it. So, um, anyway, I've changed things around here a little bit. Uh, on our way to the book of Boaz, the book of Ruth, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because there is a passage, a very short verse, actually, it's 1 Corinthians 16, uh, as Paul signs off, and you know, none of Scripture is uh, unimportant. It's uh, all inspired by God. That's 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture. All, not some. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. that The man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If you look at um, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, as he's signing off, he just... He lays this out there, and, and you, can just, you can miss it if you're not careful. He says this. He says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. There's some interesting stuff there. And one of the things that's very interesting to me for the time in which we live is the admonition to act like men. In... Nineteen sixty-six, a professor at Princeton named Dr. Marion Levy, uh, who was a sociologist, he looked around at what was going on in the '60s and what was going on in prior decades, and he wrote these words. and And I want to read them, and I want to read them slowly, and I want you to really kick in to what this guy is saying, because you're going to see a connection from what he observed in 66 to where we are today. Okay? Uh, Dr. Levy said this, Our young are the first people of whom the following can be said. If they are males, they and their fathers and their brothers and sons and all the males they know are overwhelmingly likely to have been reared under the direct domination and supervision of females from birth to maturity. No less important is the fact that their mothers and their sisters and their girlfriends and their wives and all of the ladies with whom they have to do have had to do only with males who have been so reared. Most of us have not even noticed this change, nor do we have any realization of its radicality and what is he referring to the fact that in the previous 50 years there was a shift and young men young males young boys were primarily reared by women did you know that up until about 1870 1880 all of the books on parenting were written to men Why? Because it was understood that fathers were responsible for the rearing of their children. You see. Okay, Back to Levy. Most of us have not even noticed this change, nor, we do, nor do we have any realization of its radicality. We certainly do not have any systematic body of speculation on what the significance of so radical a change are or could be. To put the matter as dramatically as possible, we do not even know whether viable human beings can over any long period of time be reared in such a fashion, because it had never been bef- done before in the history of the world. After all, this is never held true of any substantial proportion of any population For even one generation of the history of the world until the last 50 years. This has not held true for two generations, for any substantial portion of any population for more than 20 years at the outside. It has not yet characterized any substantial portion of any population for three generations, but most of us, uh, but most of those living today will live to see what this will be like. In other words, He's saying there's a cumulative effect of one generation of young boys being reared primarily in the presence of women without men, and then they raise a generation, and then they raise a generation. And what he's saying in 66, we're not even sure if this will work, but those of us who are alive today in 66, most of us will live to see, indeed, what are the consequences. Now, I would submit to you that we're living to see the consequences. Um, there, is a, uh, there is a concept called feminization. I am hoping that I have my quote in front of me, and I do. Uh, you say, where, where are you going with this? I'll show you in a minute, because we're going to look at something in Ruth chapter 3. We're going to look at a man by the name of Boaz who is not feminized. We're going to look at a man who is used in a way by God to bring blessing and favor and help and hope when there was nothing but despair. He was not a feminized man. He was a godly man. He was a masculine man. Now, when we say feminization, uh, feminization does not mean there is uh, an interest in a man's life in uh, sexually pursuing other men. It's not homosexuality. When we say feminization, we're not talking about a man being effeminate. A guy named Stephen Clark wrote a book many, many years ago, almost 30 years ago now. It's out of print, but it was called Man and Woman in Christ. Uh, I'll give you a quote from Stephen Clark on feminization. He says, Being feminized, then, is not the same as being effeminate or being feminine. A feminized male is a male who has learned to behave or react in ways that are more appropriate to women. Why? He's been raised primarily in the presence of women. You see, when men are absent, there's no alternative. Okay. The feminized male can be normal as a male with no tendencies to reject being male and no tendencies towards homosexuality. And yet he can can have been so influenced by women or can have so identified himself with a world in which women dominate that many of his interests and traits are more womanly than manly. Compared to men who have not been feminized, he will place much higher emphasis and attention on how he feels and how other people feel. He will be much more gentle and handle situations in a soft way. He will be much more subject to the approval of the group. especially emotionally expressed approval. That is how others feel about him and what he is doing, how others react to him. Feminized men take polls to see what their position should be on an issue. You see, they need the approval of the group. They don't stand on conviction, they don't stand on truth, they don't stand on principle, because one of the driving motivations of their life is for people to like them and to be popular. He will sometimes tend to relate by preference to women and other feminized or effeminate men, and will sometimes have a difficult time with an all-male group. He will tend to fear women's emotions, and in his family and at work, he can be easily controlled by the possibility of women, his mother, wife, or co-worker, having an emotional reaction. He will tend to idealize women, and if he is religious, he will tend to see in women the ideal Christians or the definition of what it means to be spiritual. He will identify Christian virtue with feminine characteristics. That's feminization. Um, I think to a degree, uh, probably every guy in this room, to one degree or another, has been feminized. But there's good news about feminization. Let me give you three things about feminization. Does any of this ring true? It's just where we are because, you see, the further you get away from Scripture and the further you get away from God's um, principles for life, the further you get away from God's principles for a home, the further you get away from God's principles for a family, the further you get away from God's principles for a nation, what happens is, is that there are consequences that are going to be felt, there are consequences that are going to be realized. People get hurt. People's lives are destroyed by this. Now, let me give you three good pieces of news about feminization. Okay? Number one, feminization can be detected. Here's number two, feminization can be avoided. And here's number three, feminization can be reversed. I'll give them to you again. Feminization can be detected. And even as I was reading some of that, you might be saying, oh, well, gosh. I relate to some of that. Every guy in here ought to relate to some of this. Nothing wrong, it's just just how our culture has been. And and sometimes, not only in the world system, but in the church, you have feminization. Uh, A lot of times in evangelical Christianity, we have a very soft Christianity. I'm editing because I, I, you remember the computer screen they gave me with my time? It's there, and I can see it. I have no excuses anymore. Um, Lou's not blinding me with his flashlight. So as I see that, I'm mindful that I have to stay on task here. But uh, Jesus Christ was very manly. Jesus Christ was very masculine. Um... I've, I've told this story, you know, if you guys have been around, you're going to hear me repeat stories, because I'm not real original. Uh, but some things mark you. I remember as a little boy, my mother had magazines, women's magazines she subscribed to. And on the back of those women's magazines, they used to have what they would have, they would have these advertisements on the back cover for Breck shampoo. And they would have what they called the Breck girl. You guys remember this, the Breck girl? And it was a portrait. It was some, you know, young girl with beautiful, gorgeous, you know, lustrous hair, and she was the Brett girl. I remember as a little boys seeing those around the house, and uh, I mean, just shiny, you know, just incredible hair. Uh, I remember going to a Christian bookstore with my mom when I was five or six, walked in, and my mom was getting stuff for some Sunday school class. I look up on the wall, and there's a picture of Jesus. You've seen the picture, you've seen the painting, very famous. He's kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, like this. And uh, I'm a little guy, and I look at him, and I, and I thought to myself, gosh, Jesus used Breck shampoo. <laughs> because his hair looked just like those girls in the Breck hat. And And, you know, as I think about it, his hands, his hands were very soft and um, probably manicured. Um, his his uh, complexion, I mean, I didn't think a lot about this then, but... The complexion was uh, soft. He looked like a woman, except he had a beard. But he looked like a woman. He was soft. Now I'll tell you something. I don't know who painted that portrait, but the guy was feminized, and he had a feminized view of Christ. Jesus didn't have soft hands. Jesus had calloused hands, because Joseph was a carpenter and he worked with his father. One of the early church fathers, uh, I can't forget which one it was, but talked about the fact that in Israel there were still plows that Jesus had made in Joseph's carpenter shop that were still in use 200 years later. That's not in the Bible, but one of the early church fathers mentioned that. So he worked as a carpenter with Joseph. They didn't buy their lumber at Home Depot. They planed their own That means he would have had some forearms. That means he would have had some calluses on him. He went into the temple on two different occasions. And they were abusing his father's house. And so what did he do? He went in there and he cleared the temple and they started looking for the exits. And when he walked in there and took that whip, they all looked and they said, look at his hair. (laughs) That's not what they said. Is it? That's not what they said. Now, did Jesus... Go clear out the temple every day and take a whip. And Did Jesus do that? No. What, you, you know what masculinity is? Masculinity is bringing the appropriate trait to bear at the appropriate time. Uh, Jesus could clear the temple, but he didn't always clear the temple. Uh, and he had the physical presence to do it. Uh, masculinity is bringing to bear the... Appropriate trait at the appropriate time. There were times when Jesus was gentle, but Jesus wasn't always gentle, was he? There were times when Jesus was sensitive. There were times when he was tender, but sometimes he was was very direct in his speech. The Pharisees hated his guts because he called them whitewashed tombs. He, he, He hadn't taken the Dale Carnegie course that week. He wasn't looking to uh, win friends and influence people. He was a truth teller. Now, was he always confronting people? No. You see, masculinity is bringing the appropriate trait to bear at the appropriate time. So, when you have a feminization process going on in a culture or going on in a particular church, what do you need? You need some men who are masculine, who are following Christ. Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. The key to reversing feminization is to get around uh, a man who is masculine. Find a role model. Find a guy who is masculine, who is following Christ, a guy who is balanced, a guy who is stable, a guy who's in the scriptures, a guy who in his life Christ is first, uh, a guy that you respect, you respect his walk, uh, his family respects him, his kids want to come home at Christmas, you see, there, there's health, there's safety. Uh, is he always a hard guy? No. Is he harsh? No. There's a balance, the appropriate trait at the appropriate time. Uh, Boaz is a model of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, let me go ahead and give you another shot, and, and then we're, we're going to go into Boaz, and you say, why are you doing all this? Because I want to set this up. Uh, Ruth chapter 3 is really kind of an interesting chapter. It, uh, it's, it's, it, it's an interesting chapter, and it's somewhat foreign to us. What's going to happen is there's going to be a marriage proposal in Ruth chapter 3. That's what all of Ruth chapter 3 is about, how um, Ruth and Boaz wound up deciding they were going to get married. Okay? I was talking with some guys today at lunch, uh, and we were talking about weddings, because uh, it turned out all of us have had daughters in the last year who have uh, been married, and we have paid for the wedding. And we all hired the same bankruptcy attorney. <laughs> just something we had in common. We just connected there. You know. One guy had three daughters. And uh, so we all took money out of our wallet and gave it to him and you know, gave him gas money. It's just what we could do for him. But Ruth 3 is all about uh, a marriage proposal, but it looks radically different than what we're used to. Now before I get to Ruth three, let me set something up. Um, we started out by looking at 1 Corinthians 16, where he tells us here, "Beyond the alert stand, firm in the faith, act like men, be strong." We are in such an interesting place in our culture. And go back to Levy's quote from 1966. He said, "We don't even know if this'll work for generation after generation of generation after males uh, of young males to be raised by women. We don't know if it's going to work. Well, I would say this to you. Now we know it doesn't work. Um, When the New York Times starts writing about the lack of masculinity in the lives of 20-somethings, you know something's not working. When the Atlantic Magazine starts writing about the lack of masculinity among young men in a culture, you know something's wrong. When they see it and when they're concerned about it. We have something going on in what we would call the 20-somethings. And they're not the only ones, because this has been a gradual decline. And you see, it's like the book of Judges, which is when Ruth was written, Boaz was there. When every man does what is right in his own eyes, so what happens when you get away from God's word and God's truth, and the wisdom of God's word and God's truth, you begin to Sink morally and you get into this downward cycle and this downward sphere and it begins to affect all these different areas of life and eventually the consequences are overwhelming. Uh, Paul says, act like men. We are at a point where a lot of young men don't even know what manhood looks like. We are at a point in our culture where you see we have young men in their 20s who are postponing adulthood and attempting to prolong adolescence. Now, adolescence is what we call that period of basically the teenage years. And, you know, we, the teenage years are interesting years. By the way, what we know is adolescence didn't exist 100 years ago. There was no adolescence. It's a modern invention. Um, There was no adolescence. You basically went from childhood to manhood is what happened. But again, the further a culture gets away from God, accommodations are made. Uh, My point is this. We're at a point right now where we have young men who don't know what it is to act like a man because they're confused of what about what manhood is. Uh, You may have young men in your family, in your extended family. You may work with young men like this. There are, historically, there have been five benchmarks of a young man leaving adolescence and um, transitioning into adulthood. Five markers, let me give them to you. The first marker would be this, leaving adolescence transitioning into manhood. The first marker would be this, completing one's education. Whatever that is, complete it. Number two, leave home. The New York Times article that I read that came out in, was it August or April, I can't remember, this year, talks about the phenomena of young men in their 20s who actually, some of them completed their education, good. But they have uh, moved home. No, you're supposed to leave home. Here's the third one. Third mark of uh, transitioning into adulthood is becoming financially independent of your parents. Your parents don't write the checks. You write the checks. Fourth benchmark of becoming an adult male uh, is getting married. Not living with a girl, getting married committing but you see there's a great fear of committing why well you might get hurt feminized men have a fear of getting hurt and once again when young boys are raised primarily by women and we thank God for women and we thank God for mothers but God designed it that a boy should have a mother and a father Over the years, it's happened several times. I've had young mothers who were raising children by themselves. I've had single moms on two or three occasions bring the same dilemma to me, and the dilemma was simply, I need some wisdom because I have a problem. My, my husband has left, and I'm raising my son by myself, and my problem is my son wants to do something I don't, I don't approve of. And I said, what is that? Well, he wants to play football. It's happened to me two or three times. In all seriousness, how old is he? He's he's 10. He wants to play football. Uh, And what's the problem? I don't want him to play football. And why don't you want him to play football? He might get hurt. I say, no, ma'am, he will get hurt. (laughs) That is the purpose of football. (laughs) And they just kind of look at me, and they say, well, exactly. And I say, exactly. (laughs) I'm not kidding. This really happens. I don't want him to get hurt. Well, of course you don't. You're a mom. Thank God for moms. Moms are nurturers, right? I don't want him to get hurt, okay? That's fine, I understand that. But I would suggest you let him play football. Because if you instill in a young boy a fear of getting hurt, you're going to feminize him. Because he is to grow up to be a man, his job is to get hurt. His job is to be a protector of his family. Husbands, Ephesians 5, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself... Up for her. Christ died for the church. Christ got hurt for the church. Do you see that? It is the job of males to follow the model, the masculine model of the Lord Jesus Christ, to love their wives in the sense of giving themselves up, if necessary, physically for their wives, taking the blows, taking the shots, and getting hurt. And what I've literally said to these gals is, You want him to grow up, and I know you're concerned because your husband's gone. And you want him to grow up to be a godly man, yes. And you want him to be married and have children and be a good husband and a good father, yes. I'd let him play football. Because if you instill in him a fear of getting hurt, it's going to be very hard for him to love his wife as Christ loved the church because he's supposed to get hurt. So, five benchmarks of being an adult. Number one, completing one's education. Number two, leaving home. Number three, becoming financially independent. Number four, getting married. Number five, having children. Okay? By the way, in every Christian home, this transition with every boy is always easy. That is supposed to be humorous. It doesn't go according to plan. I don't care how many times you listen to Focus on the family. I don't care how many parenting books you've read. I don't care how many parenting books you've written. It doesn't go according to plan because each kid is different and each kid has a will and each kid's trying to figure it out for themselves and they're going to make stupid mistakes and they're going to run into brick walls just like you did and just like I did and we all learn the hard way. Do we not? So what do you do? You love them, you pray for them, you draw lines, You ask God for wisdom because you've run out of wisdom. Nobody's got this stuff wired. Nobody. In 1964, Dr. Derek Kidner gave a threefold description of a certain kind of man. Let me go ahead and give it to you. Kidner said this, there is a type of man who will not begin things. Secondly, there is a kind of man who will not finish things. Thirdly, There is a kind of man who will not face things. Now, Derek Kidner is an Old Testament scholar. He has written, this comes from his uh, commentary on the book of Proverbs. And the man that he is describing in Proverbs, who who would have these three characteristics in his life, is the man who is referred to time and time again in the book of Proverbs, who is a sluggard. What is the sluggard? The sluggard in Proverbs is the man who will not begin things. He is the man who will not finish things. He is the man who will not face things. I would say this, where we are in our culture, the 20-somethings, and we're speaking in terms of the broad stroke of 20-somethings, is it all 20-somethings? No, thank God it isn't. There's always a remnant. God always has his 20-something men a number of these 20-something men will come to Christ and they will go through a process and they will get on the road to maturity and they will come out of this stuff. But generally speaking, where we are with 20-somethings right now, those who are postponing adulthood and attempting to prolong adolescence, there is another term for this, it's called a sluggard. What you don't want to do is you don't want to enable a young 20-something to be a sluggard. That's a role we play. You don't allow this to continue, you do you not allow it to go on? Boaz gives the alternative. So let's go to Ruth chapter 3 with that introduction. So, in Ruth chapter 3, what's happening? Well, if you've been with us, you know about the book of Ruth, and you know about Naomi, and you know about Ruth, her daughter in law. Their husbands have died in chapter 1. Um, Ruth's husband, along with the sons, they went to um, Moab, the enemies of Israel when famine broke out in Bethlehem. Um, her husband died. The two sons died. Um, now you've got a mother-in-law and two daughters-in-law. She encourages the two daughters-in-law to stay and go back to Moab. One of the daughters agrees. Ruth says no. And as we looked at a few weeks ago, Moab was a foreign nation against God, against Israel, against Yahweh, had horrific gods. Each nation had their gods. Ruth said no, I will go where you go. Your God will be my God. These women are destitute. They make their way back to Bethlehem. In chapter 2, actually, the last verse of 1, it says it's the beginning of barley harvest. Now, chapter 2, as we said last week, you look at, you got chapter 2 there? You see all of chapter 2? Chapter 2 was one day. All that occurred in chapter 2 happened in one day. It was quite an eventful day. When we get to chapter 3, actually, look at, uh, well, look at, uh, look at chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Okay, So there's your marker to start, uh, beginning of barley harvest. Then go to the end of chapter 2 and go to verse 23. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz. This is referring to Ruth. In order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. When it says she stayed with the maids in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, that's about a two-month period of time. So now, two months have gone by, and now we're in the chapter 3. Okay? Um, Now, I'm going to give you three principles about chapter 3 so that they will make sense to us as we read them. And I'm just gonna read through the uh, I'm gonna read through and just make comments and then I'm gonna pull out some principles about Ruth and about Boaz that will have application to us. All right? But but this is the marriage proposal that's gonna happen, and it's a little bit different, and it's a little bit strange to us. So I'll give you um, I'll give you three principles as we begin. And the first principle is this. Uh, It is a different time. It's a different time. Uh, This was 3,000 years ago. Different time than ours. Uh, If your uh, daughter uh, is interested in a young man or your young man is interested in a young woman and we have a process that we go through, uh, there's engagement. and there's, There's actually a phase before engagement, isn't there? You're sort of engaged to be engaged, you know? And they have different terms, and I can't remember all the terms right now uh, because I'm kind of out of it, but there are different terms that kind of demonstrate where the relationship is going. But there are phases to a relationship. None of what you're going to see in Ruth chapter 3 is even remotely familiar to how we do things today. Why? Well, it was a different time. Secondly, it was a different place. They did it differently in Israel back then than we do it In our culture today now let me say this marriage is instituted and ordained by God there are certain creation principles that are in the book of Genesis that are for all people all cultures and all time Uh, one of them is marriage for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh God invented marriage God owns marriage you cannot change the definition of marriage You, you can't do it you can try but you can't change it. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife." Marriage cannot be man to man, it cannot be woman to woman. Common sense has dictated that for thousands of years. But once again, we violate common sense uh, with our culture of higher education, uh, higher indoctrination, higher foolishness. So. Marriage has been recognized, man, woman, in every culture and every generation from time forward. Never has it been marriage between a man and a man, woman and woman. But once again, that's where we are. Okay. And one of the reasons for that is just common sense. By the way, if marriage could be man, man, woman, woman, there would be no, um, there would be no people on the earth. It's just kind of a basic concept. You know, and a lot of these people that are for that kind of homosexual marriage are very, very concerned about endangered species. <laughs> Have you noticed that? That is a big deal to them. They're always worried about an endangered species. Well, let me tell you something, pal. You legislate that, and you say that's okay, and that's legal? Put that on your endangered species list. Because <laughs> they just won't be anymore. Another creation principle I've just alluded to is having children. In Genesis it says, be fruitful and multiply. Notice how our culture has gotten away from creation principles and creation ordinances. Our culture doesn't want to have children. Why? We want to enjoy our standard of living. And so if you both work, you both bring in more money and you can vacation and you can, you know, uh, have a wine cellar with 14,000 bottles of wine. And you can always travel first class and you can always, you uh, you know, architectural digest but you don't have any kids. So you got a house that's a knockout, but you don't have a home. You just got a house. God is for kids. God likes kids. And that's why a few weeks ago we looked at 127 and 128 of Psalms. If you have children, you're blessed. And by the way, talk to a couple that are not unable to have children. I tell you you, 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 you want to see some grief, and you want to see some pain, you want to see some heartache. It's a godly desire to desire to have children. But our culture is doing everything it can do to have sex without having children. And see, here would be another sign of a young 20-something. They want to have sex, but they don't want to have kids. Why is that? Well, they don't want the responsibility. Okay. Well, isn't this a pleasant evening? (laughs) And God's plopped this right down in the middle of it. So we are privileged. You know why we're privileged? Because we know Christ and he's opened our blind eyes. And you know what? Uh, Each one of us can be a Boaz in our frame frame of influence and our sphere of influence. Every one of us. Yeah, but Steve, in the past I did this. Oh, we've all screwed up in the past. But as John Newton used to say, Jesus is a great savior. And you know what he does? He turns us into men. He turns us in not just to men. He turns us into godly men. So it was a different time, and it was a different place, and here's number three. It was a different custom, okay? Different time, different place, different custom. So with that in mind, let's dive into Route 3, if you guys are still with me. Are you still with me? Have I lost you? Okay. How many of you guys have an earpiece and you're listening to the game? <laughs> I want you to man up and confess it. Okay. Hey, don't you love what God's done for Josh Hamilton? Isn't that just great? I think that's just so, it's just a joy to see, isn't it? Gosh, isn't that great? What a great God, huh? Take that guy's life and turn it around. And, and it is transforming that team. You know, it is that they would honor him by not having the, the booze in there. You know, and he's earned the respect. He's handling himself well. I've been praying for him today as he goes in, in quite frankly, as he goes into San Francisco. I, 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 in all honesty, having been there a lot and lived there, uh, I will tell you this. When Mary and I went to Paris, I felt the same thing in Paris that I feel in San Francisco. There is an anti-God spirit. I'm just being honest with you. Ruth chapter 3. Okay? Now watch this. This is very interesting. Uh, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her. All right, this is after seven or eight weeks. Okay? Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well for you? It was the practice in this time, in this place, in this culture, for the parents to choose the marriage partner for the children. Uh, We don't do it that way anymore. We think that's old-fashioned, we think that's weird. Many cultures, many nations, they felt like they would have what they would call arranged marriages. We're way past that. We're way beyond that. We're too sophisticated, we're too educated. So what we have, we don't have arranged marriages, we have deranged marriages. But you see, there was wisdom in this because they felt that marriage was so important that you couldn't leave the decision up to young people. Because young people don't have enough experience to make such a decision that is a decision that is going to be for life. So it would be left up to the father. If the father was out of the picture, if he was dead, the mother was an influence, and here's what you have right here. Naomi is is an influence. She is a mentor to young Ruth. And, And it's her job to help her find a marriage partner since her husband died over in Moab. Okay? She's a young woman, probably still 20-ish. Okay. All right. My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman? This is very important. With whose maids you were, behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Okay they take the barley uh... in the evening hours five six seven eight the winds would come up out of the west they would be with their barley they would take it in the wind they would shake it the wind would remove the chaff they would then stack their barley it might take them several hours it would be the conclusion of the day in order to protect their crops they would sleep there at the threshing floor Okay. Verse 3 Wash yourself therefore anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. Verse 4 It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down then he will tell you what to do. So your daughter says to you, "Dad, I've met this young guy." And you've met him and I really care about him, and I really think, and and so you say, all right, sweetheart, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to UT. I want you to go into the frat house, and I want you to lie down at his feet. That's not what you do. In fact, if she does that, you're going into the frat house, and you're locked and you're loaded, metaphorically speaking. You say, what is this? Well, hey, 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 it was a different time. It was a different place. It was a different custom. Okay? Every culture, uh, cultures have marriage, but cultures have different ways of acknowledging marriage. You see, there has to be a signal in every culture. There has to be some signal from the woman that she is open to marriage. Does there not? You got to have some feedback. If you don't have any feedback, you're not going to take the next step. So this is part of the process. When you're a male, you're trying to read the you're trying to read the uh, uh, you're, you're trying to read the dials on the dashboard here. Where is she? What's going on? What is she? you know? It's just part of the deal. In this culture, in this time, um, this was the custom. Uh, in fact, do I have this quote from Richard? Yeah, Larry Richard says. Um, Yeah, 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 yeah. You shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Uh, They would spread out a blanket. Um, We'll get to this in a minute, about covering. I'll just go ahead and read it to you. Richard says, spreading a man's garment over a woman is symbolic of the protection offered in marriage. It has commonly been used as an actual part of the wedding ceremony, even among Arab Arab people to this day. So Ruth's actions would have been an obvious request for marriage. See, what's happening is she's letting him know, and see, once again, he is a distant relative. He is what is known as a kinsman redeemer. There There was a methodology and... And there were laws put in place so that a woman who was unmarried, a young widowed woman, could have a family member assist and even if necessary marry her in order to redeem her out of a life of poverty. This was their time, their custom. It was their law. Uh, uh, Naomi told her to do this. She said to her, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he came to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. There he is on the threshing floor. He's got his grain. He's going to go to sleep. He's going to protect it. She came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the, woman, that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So watch this. Spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Well, I mean, that's just pregnant with stuff right there out of the Old Testament. You know what she was doing? She was letting him know that she wanted him to be her kinsman redeemer and to be her husband. There's nothing sexual here. There's nothing improper here. There's nothing immoral here. Watch his response, verse 10. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. Once again, he uses the term he had used earlier because he was much older than she was. Uh, My daughter is not a term that a 20-something guy would say to a 20-something girl. It's something that a guy who was old enough to be her father, it's a term he would use. So there was an age gap here. There was an age difference. Okay? Now my daughter, uh, where am I here? In 10. Uh, Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it is true that I am a close relative, a kinsman redeemer. However, there is a relative closer than I. Now stay with me here. Let's read down um, to verse 18. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But even if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. Verse 14. So she laid his feet until morning, rose before one could recognize another, and he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Uh, Probably the reason is that he has got to go see another relative who technically is closer to her than he is, and he has to work out an agreement and an arrangement, which is all in Ruth chapter 4. He doesn't want to complicate matters. Okay. Verse 15. Again, he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Uh, Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, to Naomi, she said, "Uh, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. Now watch verse 17. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. The man will not rest until he has settled it today. This is all about a marriage proposal. And as we said over the last few weeks, they met in a barley field uh, providentially. Their lives would be changed. Generations would be changed. Uh, Two or three generations down the road, they will have a son He will have a son. He will have a son who is King David. Jesus Christ will be in their genealogy. Uh, There is no chance. There are no coincidences. There is no luck. God is at work in the affairs of men and women. Okay. Uh, Different custom, different time. All right. Let's look at the heart. Let's look at the behavior. Because that's always the issue. Uh, let, me, let me point out three things about Ruth's heart in this matter. Okay? Number one, she listened to her mentor. All the way through Scripture, it is wise for a, a young person to listen to an older person. Titus says that the older men are to teach the younger men. Titus says that the older women are to teach the younger women. So Ruth had a teachable spirit and a teachable heart. Secondly... She sought out a mature man. Those of you that have daughters, you work with your daughters and demonstrate to them what they should be looking for in a man. Um, You know, another thing we have going on in our culture is confusion over sexual identity. Do we not? Yes, we do. Uh, It's interesting, when I was doing research for Point Man 20 years ago, what's very interesting is that the primary influence, the primary determining factor in a young boy determining his sexual identity and a young girl determining her sexual identity, in both cases, is the father. The father is the primary reference point for a boy or a girl determining their sexual identity the boy sees his father and emulates his father and wants to be like his father. You remember seeing your dad shaving? I do. I remember he'd take that old spice, and he'd take it, and he'd he'd take a swig. (laughs) You see your dad, you want to be like your dad. My dad can beat up your dad, you know that drill. Right? Now, if you didn't have a father, your dad was gone, your dad was absent, you, didn't, you don't have those memories because your dad wasn't there. And that's a big loss in your life. and that's a big, It's a hurt in your life. It's a wound in your life. You see? So how are you going to replace Well, you've got you to gotta find a godly man and watch him. You just watch him. And if you can hang around him a little bit, hang around him. But watch what he does. Watch how he relates to other men. Watch how he conducts his affairs. The more you can hang around him, the better. Okay? Oh, by the way, you so say, well, what about the daughters and sexual identity? Well, little girls intuitively play off their fathers. They know intuitively they're different. You see? Strong fathers, not, not uh, l- listen, if you want to screw up a little boy or a little girl, become harsh Become authoritarian. Nobody can talk. Nobody can express an opinion. Now, and listen, I'm not talking about disrespect. That's Because that's, disrespect is not part of the equation, either to you or to your wife. That's a boundary you set. But there ought, to be a, there ought to be a sense of freedom. There ought to be a sense of openness. There ought to be a sense of security. There ought to be a sense of safety. Dialogue can take place. Questions are answered. Okay? You, you, you sh- it's the kind of thing where you should say to your children, if you ever have a question about anything, you come to me and ask me and I'll give you a straight answer. I don't care what it is. If it's about sex, you come to me and I'll give you a straight answer. And when it comes to sex, the, the, the model would be that, husbands, uh, that fathers are to teach their sons and wives are to teach the daughters. You see, that's, that's, that's how God has sorted all this out but a daughter intuitively plays off of her father, okay. Um, uh, She sought a mature man. So if you have daughters at home, uh, number one, show your daughter what a mature man is. Show your daughter what a mature man, how he acts. When when your daughter gets old enough to begin, you know, guys are gonna come around the house and are interested in her and wanna take her out. Um, Here's what happens to daughters. They take the template, and daughters don't even know they do this. Daughters take the template of their father's example. And what they will do is, they have this invisible template, and probably unconsciously, every young man that comes into their life, they run him through the template of your example. So it's very important how you behave. It's very important how you conduct your life. So if this guy comes into her life, and you know, uh, she likes him and he's real cute and he's real funny, all that. but all of a sudden he, he starts criticizing her, he ought to bounce off the example of your life. Because you, you, you don't criticize her. She doesn't live in a uh, climate of criticism. Uh, she doesn't, her mother doesn't. Uh, because of 1 Peter three seven, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. You see how this stuff works? You say, well, Steve, gosh, I didn't know this stuff, and I haven't done it. Well, okay. Start doing it. Just start following Christ in this area today. And and don't beat yourself up over it. I mean, you know, it's over. It's done. There's nothing you can do about it. It's a waste of energy. But now you know Christ, and you say, gosh, I'm just waking up to this. Okay, so you just say, Lord, I'm waking up to it. Would you help me? Well, I've lost all those years. Okay, you've lost all those years. But, you know, there's a verse in the Old Testament in the book of Joel that says, the years which the locusts have eaten, I will restore. So let God restore the years. You just start following Christ. Don't live in vain regrets. Don't beat yourself up. Don't kick yourself. It's a waste of energy. Get under the blood of Christ. Have you repented? Receive his forgiveness, and then you move on. Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press on. It's the gospel. It's mentally healthy to move on. All right. If someone's been hurt, if you've got to make restitution, if you've got to have a heart-to-heart talk, have the talk get it fixed, and then move on. You got it? We don't live in the past. We don't swim in the septics of the past. We're under the blood of Christ. Okay. Uh, By the way, here's the third thing about Ruth. She was known for her character. Notice when she came to the threshing floor and basically says, hey, I want you to be my kinsman redeemer. Uh, Look what he says in verse 11. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city, watch this, know that you are a woman of excellence. They knew her heart. They knew the kind of girl she was. They knew what she had done for her mother-in-law. You see? All right, now let's talk about Boaz real quick. Let's talk about Boaz's behavior. And by the way, I want to give you this, and I want it in contrast to the stuff I presented earlier about uh, where we are in our culture with men, okay? What are men doing? They're prolonging adolescence. They are putting off adulthood. Now watch this guy, Boaz, okay? Uh, Let me give you three traits about him. Number one, he was a man of honor rather than dishonor. You say, well, how do you see that? Uh, I see that because he wanted to honor her. He wanted to honor the law. She was offering herself and saying, yes, I'd like you to my my kinsman redeemer. But he says, there is a relative closer than I. He honored what was right. Um, The the New Testament says, let everything be done decently in order. God's not a God of confusion. So he honored what was correct. Okay? Um, God likes it when we obey truth. God likes it when we obey the law. Did you know in Romans chapter 13, we are told to pay our taxes? Even if our taxes go up? You're to pay them. It doesn't say you're to like paying them. But it says you're to pay them. Now, if you can get somebody else in there who will reduce them, you might want to think about that. Maybe you don't want to think about it. Uh, I don't know. That's up to you. But I'm saying, whatever the taxes are, you pay them. Before I walked over here, or came here today, when I was walking out of the house, I was just checking the mail, and I got a tax bill. And I really didn't like what I saw. I really didn't like it. Um, so if I can talk to them, I'm going to talk to them. But whatever's decided, it's my job to pay it. Now, if you, uh, you, ought to get some, you ought to get some people that really know what they're doing, who can help you. Because as you know, um, it's uh, infinitely complex code. And there are things you can do legitimately to reduce your taxes. Well, if you can do something legitimately to reduce your taxes, reduce them. But don't reduce your taxes illegitimately. It doesn't honor God. Okay. Second thing about Boaz. He took appropriate steps instead of inappropriate steps. What I'm saying is, and this all goes back to, there is a relative closer than I. Did this guy have a heart for this woman? I think he did. We would use the term today, he was in love with her. I think he was smitten with her. I think he saw a character. She's younger. She's not going after younger guys. I think he's incredibly honored that she's coming after him as a mature man. He probably thought those days were behind him. So, is he taken with her? I think he is. But he still takes appropriate steps instead of the inappropriate. He didn't say, listen, there's another relative who's a kinsman redeemer that's closer than I, but I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm going to hire an attorney and I'm going to sue that sucker and I'm going to get around this some way, some shape or form. He didn't do that. I remember 30 years ago, I had a friend, this guy was a pretty well-known Christian musician, uh, met a gal who had been married before, had come to the Lord. Uh, You know, They really got to know each other, decided they wanted to move on to marriage, but they had a catch in their spirit. As they looked at the scripture, he felt like she should try to go back and reconcile with her husband, and it killed him. It just killed him. Everything within him was saying, I hope she doesn't reconcile, but he felt like, And as he talked with her, she felt like the attempt should be made. And this went over a period of weeks. Interestingly enough, her former husband had absolutely no interest whatsoever in following Christ or in remarrying her. So with a clear conscience, they could move ahead. But you see, they took appropriate steps in their mind rather than inappropriate. God always honors that. Third principle. Boaz demonstrated decisiveness instead of passivity. And what do I mean by that? She made it very clear that she would like him to be her husband. She made it very clear that she would like him to be her kinsman redeemer. And what does he do? He says to her in verse 13, after telling him her that there's a closer relative, he says, remain this night when morning comes. If he will redeem you good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. That's decisiveness. That's not passivity. Well, I'm not sure. I can't make up my mind. It's just not clear. I don't want to commit because I don't want to get hurt because it might, you know, it might hurt my psyche. I and mean, He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And Naomi knew he wouldn't do it because look at verse 18. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. That's called decisiveness. He didn't waver. He didn't try to prolong his teenage years. He didn't try to run from responsibility. Because it's a big deal taking her as a wife because there's also a responsibility now for Naomi. But here's him. Godly men embrace responsibility. <laughs> I, I love teaching the Word of God. But I find interesting that God is always challenging me to actually live the Word of God. So last night, and I'll just finish with this, we're, we're, Mary and I are watching an old movie and I'm getting ready to hit the sack and she said, you know, Steve, I've been thinking about something. And I thought, help me, Lord. And she said, I've just been thinking. I said, okay, and, I, I, and that's great. And, and, and you know what? I, I, got a great, I got a great gal. She said, Steve, what if we did this and took this section of the garage and turned it into a room and did this? And I'm thinking, we don't need any more room. But there's someone in our life who is having a lot of physical problems. We're not related to the individual by blood, but we have a relationship. And this has been on Mary's heart. And she said, if we did this, and we did that, and we did this, then they could stay there. And duh. And I'll tell you what, it made a lot of sense. Would it involve putting out some money? Yeah. Is that something I'm looking to do right now? No. I think we're going to do it. (laughs) Because you know what? There's somebody that we really care about who really, really needs some help. And they've been very helpful to me over the years. And if indeed it's, we haven't made a decision, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's what happens. Well, how are we going to afford it? I don't know. I don't have a clue, but I will say this. If we get the green light from the Lord, you know what'll happen? We'll be able to afford it. It'll work, he'll make a way. I don't mind teaching on Boaz, but he wants me to be a Boaz, and he wants you to be a Boaz in your sphere. So let's bow before him. So with our hearts, Lord, we're saying we're willing, whatever you would have us to do, make it clear. Demonstrate it to us. Uh, if it's not clear, we shouldn't move ahead. But if it's clear, you'll confirm it. Through some godly friends, providentially, you'll confirm it. And when you do, let us be decisive and move ahead, trusting in you. May we be a blessing to someone else. May we be a Boaz. And I would pray, Father, for young men in our lives that you might bring across our path, that you might enable us to have an influence on a young man who is hurting, who is lost, who has never seen the real deal. And if you bring them across our path, may we be quick to give up some of our time and to give up some of our leisure in order to help show a young man what true, godly, manly, Jesus Christ manhood is all about. We would welcome that opportunity. It would be good for us. It would be good for the young man. In your name we pray. Amen.